Please open your Bibles once you have been seated. Please open them to Romans chapter 15. We're in the middle of the book. Today we're going to be looking and meditating on verses 8 through 13. What I'd like to do is start reading from the top of the chapter. That'll kind of reorient you to where we were last week. You, of course, will likely remember what we've been discussing as we went through 14 and then got into 15. We'll revisit some of that today as I summarize Um, But I think what we're seeing today, I mean, he was kind of in the weeds. We were kind of zoomed in on specific problems that were causing division maybe or potentially that were, um, could could threaten to break up unity. And and Paul's been telling us what to do there, but then he kind of backs out and he kind of looks at um, some of the bigger picture and where some of these uh, problems might even be coming from. And, And along the way, I think we find some pretty, strong encouragement. So with that introduction, let's read. This is God's holy word. Again, we're going to begin reading at Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And Isaiah, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, that is our desire. Um, We do desire to abound in hope. Lord, we desire that our strength would be, our faith would be strengthened. Lord, we would look to you. We desire also to hear your voice, to know that you're near. Um, Lord, we need to hear from you, so we would set ourselves before you, Lord, even begging, would you please speak to us? Would you please give us ears to hear? Uh, Would you uh, take this word of yours and show us, show us it, Lord. Show us Jesus and his goodness. And would you also show us what you'd have us do? What do we do with this word? 
Lord, help us. Hear our prayer. We'd ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We thank all of you. All of you know that life can be pretty, uh, pretty hard at times. It can be, it can be challenging to say the least. Uh, there, there's all kinds of pressures that each of us face, uh, different, different stressors in there, and they're different for us depending on where we are, what stage of life we're in. Uh, some, sometimes you might even feel like uh, you're running out of gas a little bit or you're running on fumes, you're wondering how you're going to keep um, moving forward or, or when God's going to answer and come to your rescue We face uh, medical issues. Some of you might be facing financial issues, maybe maybe legal issues, interpersonal issues, family issues, church issues, issues in various relationships. There's pressures related uh, to work, stress there. And there's pressure at school. And then there's um, the pressure of, of meeting your parents' expectations. You see what I'm saying? We, we're all in different ages, or different stages, and we all have pressures, pressures of different um, kinds. And then there's also those internal issues as well, right? Discontentment, a disappointment, disenchantment, depression, Maybe you're worn out. Maybe you're worn out from the battle in your mind. You know, you just can't, you can't quit thinking and, and the various thoughts keep coming up. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with a besetting sin and, and you're wondering, why can't I get victory? Why would, where is God? Is he gonna give me the strength here? Why, why can't I get victory over this? Our text, the text before us, I think is a great encouragement. It's, it serves as a reminder. Uh, Paul wants us, as I've said, to take a step back from the discussion we've been having and to look at the bigger picture. And as you do, and as we do, you're reminded uh, that you should place your hope in Jesus. It's pretty simple and straightforward and yet profound to trust him to invest, to invest your confidence in the Lord. You can see uh, that in Paul's prayer for you. That is his prayer for you. Look at verse 13. Consider what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Life's challenges, again, they can drain us, leaving us feeling depleted and uncertain. But in verse eight, Paul reminds us of God's faithfulness through Christ's ministry to the Jews. Let's explore our first heading, God's faithfulness. That's what we'll think about first, God's faithfulness. Now remember the context of this passage. Paul's been addressing the importance of, of unity and acceptance among believers. He's been urging the church in Rome to uh, refrain from division over matters regarding food and observing certain days. And you gotta remember that at this point in church history, a lot was changing. There were massive changes. Before Jesus came, if you wanted to worship 
the God of the Bible, you had to become one of his people. You essentially had to become a member of Israel. You had to embrace, of course, the moral law, but also the civil law and the ceremonial law. And if you were a male, you had to receive circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. But with the coming of Christ, everything started to change. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Believers were no longer required to keep the food laws or the feast days or do things like bringing a sacrifice to the temple. Even the sign of the covenant changed. It changed from circumcision to baptism. And the covenant people became broader, much broader than just one nation. Things were changing. Things were changing in a big way. And as you know, change can be hard, especially for those Jewish saints. And we can identify with this, right? I mean, think about doing something just as simple as, let's say, changing this pulpit. If we want, some of the newer saints around here might say, hey, you know what, we should, we should change that over there. And then some of the older saints say, whoa, whoa, whoa! Are you, do you know where that came from? Do you know who brought that here? Change can be hard for us, even in the simple things. Imagine those big types of things that were changing. We could sympathize with the church in Paul's day. Again, change is hard. And part of that change was that for the first time ever, for the first time ever, ever, Jews and Gentiles were together in one body as one body together as the church. They were united as one in Christ. And we know from living in this melting pot nation of ours that sometimes when you get multiple cultures together, there can be clashing, right? Clashing when they come together. Well, Paul wants the Gentiles first. He addresses them, and then he'll address the Jews. But first he starts with the Gentiles. He wants them to know that the Lord loves, the Lord loves their Jewish brothers and sisters. Of course, Jesus was a Jew, and it was the Jews that brought the Gentiles faithfully. They brought the gospel to the Gentiles. In verse 8, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. When Paul speaks of Jesus becoming a servant, he is referencing that act of humility and selflessness that he demonstrated when he began his earthly ministry. Jesus voluntarily relinquished his divine privileges to take on the form of a servant, that is, to take on a human nature to himself and to ultimately submit to the death on, to death on the cross for the redemption of his people, both Jew and Gentile. And you'll notice that Paul says that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. He's referencing the Jews are those that are under the old covenant. After all, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. Paul wants you to understand that Jesus came to fulfill God's promise to the Jewish people 
Throughout the Old Testament, God made numerous promises to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He made promises that he would send the Messiah and that he would establish a new covenant. You see, Jesus is a demonstration that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. His life, his life and his ministry served to validate God's truthfulness. His life confirmed the promises made to the Jewish forefathers. Christ's servanthood to the circumcised was a tangible expression of God's truthfulness and faithfulness. Maybe you're facing a situation or you're experiencing something that's causing you to doubt God's truthfulness or faithfulness. Perhaps you're suffering and that's leading you to question why a loving and faithful God would allow such hardships in your life. Maybe it's unanswered prayers. When prayers seem to go unanswered, or when circumstances don't align with our expectation, we can struggle with doubts about whether God is truly listening or whether he cares about our concerns. Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you've experienced setbacks or unmet expectations, and it's causing you to question God's faithfulness. Or maybe it's moral failures. Maybe you've been struggling with sin and temptation and it's leading you to doubt God's forgiveness. It's leading you to doubt his grace and his word and his ability to transform your life. Or maybe you just feel spiritually dry. Seasons of spiritual dryness can cause you to question the reality of God's presence. It can cause you to question his involvement in your life. It could cause you to question the genuineness of your faith. If you're struggling, take heart. Take heart in the encouragement of this text. It is no pure coincidence that you are here this morning. God wants you to hear this sermon. He wants you to meditate on this text. Strive, strive to hear it. God's faithfulness is unwavering and dependable. God's faithfulness is unwavering and dependable throughout History, God has proven himself to be reliable and trustworthy. He has never failed to fulfill his word. So in the midst of your challenges, hold firmly to the assurance that God's faithfulness endures. He will. He will remain true to his promises. We witness God's faithfulness as Jesus becomes a servant to the Jews to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. And as the text continues, we see 
God's faithfulness sets the stage for understanding his mercy, his mercy, God's mercy. That's our second heading, God's mercy. Well, we've learned that Jesus came fulfilling God's promises to the Jewish people. And in verse 9, we see that's not the only reason that he came. Jesus also came to extend those promises to the Gentiles. He came to extend those promises to the entire world. Let's stop here and, and ask a basic question. What is at the core of those promises? What's at the core of those promises is that if you believe that Jesus is that promised one, that he is the Messiah, if you believe in Jesus, you will receive eternal life. You will be saved. That's at the core of the promises. Let's consider our text. We'll begin at verse eight. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Have you ever received some fantastic news, something marvelous, something that's hard for you to believe? I mean, you, you know it's true, but it's just hard for you to grasp. For instance, maybe you, um, at one point in your life, uh, sub- submitted or applied for a college, wanting to go to some college, and then you get that letter in the mail, that acceptance letter. Now, you might be nervous about opening it up, but you bring it inside. Maybe you call people over to yourself, and then you open the letter, right? And you start reading it. And when you read those words, that you've been accepted to that college. You're jumping for joy. You, you can't believe it. You love this news, and so you look at the letter, and you read it again and again, and then you set it down, then you go back to it. You read it again. Well, Paul gives us some great news in this letter, and, and not only in this letter. He directs us to the other parts of the Bible as well, He illustrates how God's mercy has been extended to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and it leads them to glorify God. You see, God's mercy is so abundant, so compassionate, that it reaches out to all who are in need of grace and forgiveness. You'll recall that in verse 4, Paul emphasized that everything written in the Scriptures was written for our instruction. He tells uh, the people that in his letter, he knows he's about to drop a bunch of passages upon them. And now he cites several passages from the Old Testament in order to demonstrate that God's plan includes and had included extending mercy to the Gentiles. Now Paul is engaging the Jewish Christians in Rome, isn't he? He wants them to understand that Jesus loves their Gentile brothers and sisters. He's welcomed them as his people. It's been a part of the plan. So what's he going to do? He's going to point the Jews to some bigwigs, isn't he? He's going to point them 
to things that David said, things that Moses said, things that the prophet Isaiah said. They told you the Jews were going to be part of God's people. Let's read verses 9 through 12, and then we'll go back, and I'll tell you where each of these quotes are from and why I think Paul has brought them to our attention. In verse 9, Paul begins by quoting the Old Testament here. He says, As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. The first citation is taken from Psalm 18. It's verse 49. We sang it earlier. Paul cites this passage to highlight how God's plan includes the Gentiles through the Davidic line. In the psalm we sang earlier, David acknowledges God's role in his victory and he pledges to praise God not only among his own people, but among the nations. You see, the Davidic kingship extends beyond the borders of Israel. It encompasses the Gentile nations as well. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic promises. He inherits this universal kingship. God's salvation plan includes all peoples, not just the Jews. Jesus will stand before the nations as king. So when we sang that psalm earlier, you could think of it as Jesus singing. It's David, but Jesus is the greater David And he's saying, I will stand before all nations as king. The second citation is taken from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Moses is calling the Gentiles to join Israel in praise to God. It's exactly what they're experiencing there in Rome. The Gentiles are right here in the pews with us. Even all the way back To Moses, it was said, this passage reflects God's intention for his salvation to extend beyond the boundaries of Israel to include all nations. The third citation is taken from Psalm 117. It also calls the nations to praise God. And the final citation is from Isaiah 11.10. Here, the Davidic king, the Messiah, is proclaimed as the hope of the nations. In his mercy, God brings salvation to the Gentiles. God's mercy is a central aspect of his character. It reveals his compassion. As sinners, we rightfully deserve judgment for our sins against God's holy standards. Yet in his infinite love and mercy, he offers us forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son. God's mercy means that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead he offers us forgiveness and restoration. It means that he's patient with us, giving us opportunities to repent and turn back to him even when we repeatedly 
fail. God's mercy is not dependent on our worthiness or merit. No, it flows from his character of love and compassion. It's a gift freely given to all who will humble themselves and seek his forgiveness. As broken and sinful individuals, God's mercy is both our hope and our encouragement. It assures us that no matter how far we have fallen or how deeply we have strayed, there's always a way back to God's loving embrace. His mercy offers us comfort and peace in moments of guilt and shame. It reminds us that our sins are not too great for his forgiveness. It motivates us to repentance and transformation, knowing that God's mercy is greater than our failures and his grace is sufficient to cover our sins. After considering God's mercy, it's no wonder that the Gentiles are compelled to praise God. He didn't have to save them. He didn't have to save you or me, but he brought the gospel to them and he told them, if you believe, you are welcome. They can't believe it. They've been invited too. What good news, what great news. It's eternal news. God is faithful and merciful and Paul encourages believers to find hope and joy and peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's empowerment, that's our third heading. God's empowerment. Coming from California, basements were new to me. Uh, Maybe maybe basements are a bad idea in earthquake country, I don't know. Uh, But here in Indiana, we have basements. And what I came to find out is with basements come sump pumps. I'm learning. I am learning. A while back ago, I was encouraged to get a battery backup for my sump pump. I was asked, do you have a battery backup for your sump pump? I said, no. Am I supposed to have a battery backup for my sump pump? He said, you better have a battery backup for your sump pump. Do you know what's going to happen to you if the power goes out and it's raining? The water's going to rise and it's going to flood your basement. Do you want your basement to flood? I said, no. I don't, I don't want my basement to flood. They said, then you got to get a battery backup. You're in need of continual power. Now I've got a battery backup. It was expensive. Well, in a similar way, as believers, we also need a continual source of power to navigate the rising challenges we face in life. Thankfully, in verse 13 of our text, we discover that God equips and empowers his people with hope, enabling them to withstand the floods of life and emerge victorious. Draw your attention to verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul picks up the theme of hope in verse 13 with a prayer to the God of hope. 
Paul asked God to fill Christians in Rome with all joy and peace in believing. And notice that the purpose of this filling is so that they will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the church in Rome was experiencing division because of differences of opinion and conviction. They needed hope. When hope fades, it can lead to despair and division within the church. So it's vital for us to stay filled with hope that comes from God. This hope empowers us to tackle challenges together and to keep our faith strong. The same is true with challenges outside of the church, whether it's talking about a group like your family or you're talking about an individual. We need to stay filled with hope that comes from God. And let's remember that in the Bible, hope isn't just about wishing something good will happen or feeling positive about life's ups and downs. It's about having deep confidence and trust in God's promises even when things seem uncertain. As Christians, our hope is rooted in who God is. Our hope is rooted in who God is. It's rooted in his love and in his faithfulness. It's rooted in believing that he is in control of everything. So how do you obtain hope? Well, we should start by following Paul's example. What does he do in verse 13? He prays. You need to be communicating with God. Express your desires. Surrender your concerns to him. And remember, when you pray for hope, you're essentially asking God to strengthen your faith and your trust in him. So pray that way. Ask the Lord to strengthen your faith, to help you to trust him to help you to surrender your life to him. In prayer, we surrender to God's grace and power, admitting our need for him. We ask him to renew our hope, our strength, and our faith, and that aligns our hearts with his will, allowing him to change us from the inside out. Getting hope also means diving into God's word. The Bible is full of encouragement. It's full of wisdom and promises that boost our hope and trust in God. When you soak up the scripture, you see who God is, his promises, and how he's been faithful throughout history. It's like fuel for your faith. It's like fuel that fills you with that hope. There's another key aspect to biblical hope that we should consider. Biblical hope isn't just wishful thinking or optimism based on, that's not based on our current circumstances. It's looking forward. It's like anticipating a vacation that's on the horizon. As you press through the challenges of your work week, you find peace and joy knowing that a relaxing getaway awaits you. 
Similarly, biblical hope looks beyond your present struggles and places trust in God's promises for your future. You see, biblical hope isn't tied to something around us. It's rooted in the unchanging nature of God himself. It's like a strong anchor that keeps a ship steady in a stormy sea. Our hope And God is like an anchor for our souls, firm and secure, just as Hebrews 6.19 tells us. Sometimes friends can bring us hope as well. Can you think of a friend like that? Maybe a family member? Someone who loves you. Someone who you know is for you. Someone who wants you to win. Someone who always has your back. Jesus is like that. Jesus is like that. And beloved, I can look you in the eye and I can tell you with authority that no matter who you were thinking of, Jesus loves you more. He is for you. He will always have your back. He loves you dearly. Come to him with your needs. He has the power to provide for you so that you abound in hope. As we reflect on this passage, let's really soak in what's been uncovered about our God, how faithful, merciful, and empowering he truly is. Think back to when we talked about God's faithfulness. We came to realize that Jesus became a servant and confirmed the promises that God had made. That's our God. He always keeps his promises. When everything around us seems to be changing, his promises are sure. Then there's his mercy. We saw that God's mercy extended to the entire world through Jesus. We discover that God's mercy extends beyond our comprehension. It's like an ocean of grace that just keeps pouring out, reaching out to everyone who will call upon him. Even when you mess up, there he is with open arms, ready to forgive and restore. And let's not forget about the Holy Spirit, our ultimate source of hope. This hope goes beyond mere optimism. It anchors our souls in the unchanging character of God and his promises for the future. As we go from here, don't don't leave these truths behind. That'd be a giant mistake. Live them out. Live them out. Lean into God's faithfulness when times are tough. Cling to his mercy when you stumble and tap into the Holy Spirit's power when you feel weak. And above all, keep your hope firmly anchored in Jesus. Because when we do, we could face anything that comes our way with confidence and joy, knowing that God will be with us every step of the way. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this passage. 
We thank you for the reminder that you are truthful, merciful, that you can empower us, Lord, that we would find victory. We would ask just for that. Oh, Lord, we do pray that you would strengthen our faith and give us hope. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we need you. We confess that before you. Oh, Lord, we need you much more than we even recognize. We lay ourselves before you as individuals, as families, as a church. And Lord, we pray that you would pour out your grace upon us. We are looking to you, Lord. We'd ask you to hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.